I want you to think about maybe not just the immediate days that have preceded today, but throughout your life, who would you consider a friend? What is a friend? If somebody asks you to explain it or elaborate on it, define it, what is friendship? What does it mean not only to have a friend, whoever you may have dialed up from a distant memory or from even your current context, what does it mean not only to have a friend, but for you to be one? Are you a friend? On what basis? Who, who considers you their friend? Why? On what foundation is that friendship built? The ones that you thought of who are friends to you or that others think of and you're a friend to them, what's the basis of that relationship? How do they therefore operate from that foundation? Well, that's our theme today, and we'll look at the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel to dig into it. You can be finding that place and turning over to chapter 20, but before we read, I want to just give a bit of background to this passage. Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel, are so important to our understanding of what God has done in the world. Without these books, we would be left to wonder about some really big pieces of redemptive history. But Samuel, we learn from 1st Samuel, Uh, Not only about his birth and the circumstances circumstances surrounding that, but also especially how the Lord used him. There was a call upon Samuel's life to serve in a particular time in redemptive history between the judges and the kings. And Samuel, the prophet, we learn a lot about him in this first book, 1 Samuel, and uh, more about the kingdom in the second book, 2 Samuel, Uh, But this book was written about a thousand years, more specifically, 1050, 1050 years B.C. And as I mentioned, his birth, his prophetic calling, and his ministry, that is Samuel's, fall between the time when Israel was without a king, it's the judges, and the united monarchy when they finally have a king. First Saul, then David. So when Samuel comes on the scene, every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. Judges 21-25. It's not a good situation. But then, and by the grace of God, even among an obstinate and very rebellious people who didn't want a monarchy, they didn't want God to be their king. They wanted to be like all the other nations. And it's a sad tale in redemptive history, and the same thing is happening in our day. When even God's people are saying, no, 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 we, we want to be like the surrounding nations. Give us a king based on our own whims and preferences or the best that we see among the pagan nations. But the church has always been called to be an alternate universe. We're a different society. We're not supposed to look at all like the surrounding nations. And Israel never was either. So when Samuel comes on the scene, every man's doing what's right in his own eyes, but then they start to cry out because of jealousy of the pagan nations for a king, and God grants their carnal desire. For Samuel 9, he gives them Saul, and then for Samuel 16, he gives them, by his grace, David. 
When we make our way to 1 Samuel 18, I said 20, but we'll pick up the reading in 18. When we make our way to 1 Samuel 18, we'll read in just a moment, the shepherd boy David has already been anointed two chapters earlier by Samuel to be the future king, that's 1 Samuel 16. And then one chapter prior, 1 Samuel 17, he has just defeated Goliath on the field of battle. And we're going to pick up our reading right after that in chapter 18 where we find a passage explaining to us the beginning of a friendship between Saul's son, Jonathan, who is the heir apparent to the throne of Israel, the next king, and David, the man that God had chosen. Well, with that in mind, hear the word of the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard translation. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, that's David speaking to Saul after he defeated Goliath. It came about when David had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Let's just go back to that and read it with proper nouns. Jonathan loved David as Jonathan loved Jonathan. Verse 2. Saul took him, that's David, Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his, that's David's, father's house. Verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he, Jonathan, Loved him, David, as himself, Jonathan. If you'll lick your finger and flip over to chapter 20, I want to read one other verse. Chapter 20, verse 17. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 17. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him. Because he, Jonathan, loved him, David, as he, Jonathan, loved his, Jonathan's, own life. Jonathan made a vow again because he loved his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. Would you join me as we pray once again before we consider these wonderful themes? Oh, Father, I pray that by your Spirit, through your Word, under the light of the Gospel, You would preach to me even as I preach. Would you cause me to be a friend like Christ? To everybody around me, whether they receive the friendship or not. And would you cause us not to look for friends who are basically us wanting a mirror for ourselves, Accumulating friends for us who just are some sort of reflection of what we already think about ourselves. Rather, Lord, cause us to look out to Christ, to see Him, to believe upon Him, be befriended by Him, and then as His love courses through our life like blood through our veins, we pray that His life through us would cause us to be godly friends to one another. We ask this for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. 
Well, my main aim today is to behold Jesus with you. That may sound uh, strange to you from 1 Samuel, written a thousand years before Jesus is born. But looking through the lens of the life of Jonathan, Saul's son, I want us to look at the rich biblical theme of friendship. I don't know how much you've considered what the Bible has to say about being a friend or having friends. And I especially want us to see, with no apology, the Lord Jesus Christ as the greater Jonathan. That Jonathan's a little shadow and Christ is the substance. But to see through the lens of Jonathan's life, the greater Jonathan, the Lord Jesus, as the flawless template for godly friendships among believers, especially in the local church. So now we already are bumping up against a question. How much does Jesus inform the way you do friendship? That's what we're after today. In the New Testament, the understanding of friendship among Christians was so closely connected to a Christian's relationship to Jesus that in the New Testament, believers... Starting referring, started referring to one another as friends. 3 John 1.5 Peace be to you, the friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. They refer to each other as friends because of their friendship with Christ. So there are several points from Jonathan's relationship with David that I want to draw out as we look through that lens to the Lord Jesus. Number one, Jonathan's love for David led him to do something. That is, to advocate for his friend. To advocate, to appeal for his friend. There's so much here, but just for time's sake, look at chapter 19, verse 1. 1 Samuel 19. Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death, but Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So... Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. Verse 3, I will go out and stand beside my father in the place where you are, in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, I'll tell you. Verse 4, then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very very beneficial to you. Verse 5, For he took his life in his hands and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Do you see what Jonathan is doing? He's the son of the king. The king is incensed at David, and if you just read in context, chapter 18, it's because, uh, among other things, Saul hears some ladies singing a song, and Saul doesn't like the song too much, because the song goes something like this, Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his ten thousands. And so allegiance was transferring in the heart of the people from Saul to David, and Saul didn't like that so much, he was filled with jealousy. You know what that means? He was totally insecure. Saul was insecure. He couldn't stand for another person to be honored above himself. Can you stand that in your relationships? Not only do you stand, can you stand it, do you advocate for that? Do you seek, as Clyde said, my discipler, to obey the hardest verse in the New Testament? 
to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but to purposefully consider others more important than you. Saul couldn't do it. Do you see Jonathan doing that though? He's advocating for his friend. ESB study Bible says concerning verse 4, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father. Don't let the king sin against David. David has not sinned against you. David's deeds have been beneficial to you. ESV Study Bible comments, Jonathan appeals to Saul the king on the basis of a king's obligation to do justice. Now think about it. Saul wasn't just dad to Jonathan. Saul was king to Israel. And as king, he bore a responsibility to do justice. How can you set a man up for death? How can you effectively seek to slay a man by conspiracy and be just at the same time? You can't do it. So Jonathan's appeal to Saul is not just son to father, it's resident to king. You're supposed to be just. ESV goes on to say, concerning verse 5, which speaks of David taking his life in his own hands to strike Goliath and kill him, and how the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all of Israel through David, and how Saul saw it and rejoiced. Why then would Saul, Jonathan says, sin against David, innocent blood, by putting him to death without any reason? ESV Study Bible says Jonathan took his life in his own hand, meaning Jonathan risked Jonathan's life to save David's. That's what I mean by advocating for your friend. To love somebody more than you love yourself requires the gospel. In fact, to love each other best, we cannot love each other first. Christ has to hold the place of highest honor. And if you listen to Jonathan advocate for David in chapters 18, 19, and 20, before his father Saul, you'll bump into verses like chapter 20, verse 32. Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should David be put to death? What has he done over and over again? Jonathan is advocating for David. I trust that any of you who know Jesus can already hear the overtures of God's gospel love for you as it is repeated through the lips of His Son, your advocate, the Lord Jesus. If any man sins, David didn't sin in this case. But if any man sins, we, 1 John says, have an advocate with the Father. Who is it? The Son. Jesus Christ the righteous. And Jesus is saying to the Father, the King, on the basis of His justice over the kingdom, you can't put them to death because I am advocating in their stead. So number one, Jonathan's love for David led him to advocate for his friend. Number two, Jonathan's love for David also led him to vow to answer his request. David knew that when he was talking to Jonathan, he was having a real conversation because Jonathan vowed to answer David's request. I trust you guys know what it's like to have those miserable interactions where it's not a real conversation. And you and the other person know it. While you're making an appeal to them, they're busy thinking about what they're going to say back to you. It's not a conversation. It's a 
kind of a sedated argument. No, no, no. Jonathan listened to David. He heard him. And even before David spoke to Jonathan, Jonathan front-loaded the conversation by saying, I promise you, I vow to you, I'm vouchsafing myself to you that what you request, I will answer. Now, are we always going to like the answer? No. Is Jonathan a yes man? No. But does David know that Jonathan listens? 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 4. Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do it for you. Now again, believers already, I trust, can make a quick connection to our mediator, the Lord Jesus. Our friend who, in His love for us, front loads our conversations with Him by saying to us things like John chapter 14, if you ask anything in My name to the Father, it will be done for you. He doesn't say, to that. He doesn't say that to us after we pray. He says it before we pray. So that we know we have a friend who's bent toward. He leans forward on His throne. He's more eager to hear and answer our prayer than we are to ask it. And this is the way Jonathan treats David. What a friend. Whatever you say, I'll do it for you. Now I'm all ears. What would you like to say to me? So number one, he advocates for David to the king. Number two, he vows to answer his request. Number three, Jonathan's love for David led him also to vow, not only to answer his request, but number three, to vow his own life in David's place in the event that harm fell to David. Can you hear this sermon? Can you test your friendships by it? Jonathan's love for David led him to vow his own life in David's place in the event of any harm done to David. Look at chapter 20, verse 13. If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Did you catch that first line? If it please my father to do you harm, if my dad's going to kill you, may the Lord do so to Jonathan, to me, and even worse, even more also. You see what Jonathan's doing? He's substituting his own life as the son of the king in the place of David. Where Saul was insecure and couldn't stand for people to do this for David, Jonathan rested securely, I trust in God's love for him, that released him from the need to be the next king. In fact, not only not needing to be the next king, he was perfectly willing to die in David's stead. Again, I trust that those of you who are in Christ can already make quick connections to the cross and God's Gospel love. Like Jonathan, the Lord Jesus not only prays harm upon Himself if He does not provide safety for us, He sovereignly, sovereignly, providentially planned the cross 
so that in the harm he received upon himself, you and I would go safely free. In Galatians, in the New Testament, we read that Jesus became a curse for us. He took the penalty for us. Oh, beautiful Gospel love. What a friend that He bore the punishment we deserve. Whereas David was innocent, you and I are all guilty. Whereas Jonathan vowed to stand in David's place should harm come to David, Jesus the Lord vows to stand in our place because He knows there's a tsunami of harm coming our way and He took it in our stead. In the old hymn, Lord of glory, we adore Thee. The theme is captured so beautifully. Lord of life, to death once subject, blessed yet a curse once made, of thy Father's heart the object yet in depths of anguish laid, thee we gaze on, thee recall, bearing here our sorrows all. Do you see what Jesus does for his people? As Jonathan in a shadow way does for David. Stepping in to harm's way so that we may go free. Number four, Jonathan's love for David led him to actually put his own life on the line for his friend. He didn't just vow to do it, he actually did it. It's one thing to say, I, I love you, and I love you so much that I'm willing to die for you. That's one thing. It's another thing to behave like Esther, isn't it? Going into the king's court, risking her own neck for her kinsman, her beloved it's one thing to say I would die for you, and it's another thing to be a grieving widow like young Ruth and unite yourself to your mother-in-law Naomi and say, your God will be my God. I'm going where you go. Where you die, I'm going to die. It's one thing to say it, and it's another thing to do it. It's one thing for the King of glory to tell us that He would be willing to die for such as us to display His love for us, but it's another thing altogether for that King to dismount His throne from heaven and hang upon a condemned tree outside of Jerusalem as a criminal in my place. You see, it's not Saul saying that he'll take David's place. It's the righteous son of the King. Much like our Redeemer. Like Jonathan, Christ put his own life on the line for his friends. For who? 1 Samuel 20, verse 31. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established, Saul says to Jonathan. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to strike him down, so Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Do you see what just happened? The king attempted to kill his own son because the son stood in the place of the people. The friend. See, Jonathan had already... It was, the question was answered for Jonathan. He had already given up his throne for David. He already knew that God's anointing was on David. But Jesus not only gave up His throne for you, didn't just have a near-death experience for you so that you would realize that He really meant what He said. The Lord Jesus actually lays down His life for you. He did take the Father's spear with delight, not in any sense that the Father had some kind of 
dastardly or demonic plan, no kind of deceit, but a good plan coming out of the good heart of the loving king. The son suffered the mortal wound so that you could be spared with him in the heavenlies forever, sharing in his kingdom. If you only love those who inflate your view of you, I love you enough to tell you that that's not love. That's the kind of love that's expressed when you look in the mirror. That self-love. The old saying is true, isn't it? It's not love until it hurts. What does your love cost you? What did Jonathan's love cost him? What did Christ's love cost him? Can you love people who are not like looking in the mirror? I don't mean only outwardly, but as Samuel talks about, deep in their dispositions and in their heart. Can you receive love from people different than you? If Christ comes to take up residence in your heart, if Christ comes to take up residence in your heart, then He will become the common bond in your relationships with others. He, 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 not we, are the central focus. And He is the strength of the bond of our mutual love. That's the church, friends. That's heaven. Where Christ and His aroma pervades everything about all of our relationships. Number five. Jonathan's love for David led him to weep with his friend at a great time of sorrow. And in that moment of great sorrow, Jonathan's love for David also led him to reaffirm his love for him no matter what. Look at chapter 20, verse 41. Chapter 20, verse 41. When the lad was gone, that was a little fella chasing the arrows that Jonathan shot. When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they, that's Jonathan and David, they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the more. And so there's David, big, big sobbing tears, heaving chest. And Jonathan says to David, go in safety. Inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he, David, rose up and departed while Jonathan went into the city. Maurice Roberts' sermon on those two verses was titled, True Spiritual Love. You see, Jesus came so near that He not only died 2,000 years ago, though that's gloriously true. In a city that most of us have never visited, it would be very difficult for us to even conjure up in our mind's eye what the scene actually even looked like. Because that feels like a distant Savior way over there or way back there somewhere. But like Jonathan coming to David, in this moment of intense sorrow, knowing that they would not see each other perhaps ever again on this side of heaven, and David understanding the import of that moment is weeping on the shoulder of his friend, have you ever carried your burden to Jesus? If you have, what did He say to you? If you have, what did He say to you? Just like He front loads our incentive to pray by telling us that He will respond. Ask anything in My name and it will be done for you. 
so also he front loads the reason that we should come to him in our deepest sorrow. Cast your cares upon the Lord. Why? He cares for you. He's your friend. He loves you. What's He going to say to you in that moment? He's going to say to you, go in safety. Inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, the Lord will be between me and you. And between my descendants and yours. I'm never going to leave you. I'm your God forevermore. It's one thing to lay your burden on a beloved friend, humanly speaking, and we should do that because bearing one another's burdens, says the New Testament, is the way we fulfill the law of the Lord. We should shoulder each other's burdens, but your shoulders and mine are so weak. But there's a broad-shouldered Redeemer who can uphold all the weights that we carry deep in our hearts and all the challenges of this broken world. And if we go to Him, He's going to say to us, I love you. You can weep here. David wept the more. You can cry here. You're safe here. You can be vulnerable here. I know you. I know your heart. And guess what? I love you. And I'm never going to leave you. Well, some applications before we close. I don't believe the Bible is ever calling us to have friends. Now, that's an odd thing to say as an application to a sermon on friendship. I don't think the Scripture's call is have friends. I do believe the Scripture's call is as you look to Christ, learn how to be the right kind of friend. You can't outgive God. You simply can't do it. The more you invest your life in the lives of others for the glory of Christ, the more God pours into you His own satisfying fulfillment. It's not wait for somebody to be your friend. It's seek to be the right kind of friend because as you know, friendships, if you're just looking for friends, you can find common bonds all over the place. Some of them good, some of them bad. Some of them righteous, some of them sinful. Some of them amoral and neutral. You can base friendships on woodworking or craft making. You can base friendships on common entertainment passions or political perspectives. You can base it on your favorite movies or games or whatever else you like to do in your leisure activity or time. You might form a friendship based around your areas of study or endless other areas of interest. The Scriptures teach us very plainly that you can build the friendship, even with Jesus in the mix, on the wrong foundation. You remember when Pilate and Herod became friends in Luke chapter 23? Now Herod and Pilate, that's the two people jockeying Jesus back and forth in their kangaroo court before they crucified Him. Herod and Pilate, Luke 23.12, became friends with one another that very day for before they had been enemies with each other. What made them friends? Jesus was in the middle. But it was their mutual hatred for Jesus that made them friends. So let's be clear. You can have Jesus as your starting place like Herod and Pilate and still have a toxic friendship. The question is not do you both talk about Him. Herod and Pilate did that. The question is do you love Him? Do you know His love for you? If so, you're free to love. You don't need them to fill a hole in your heart anymore because Christ is your portion. The question is not do you talk about Him, but do you love Him? And do you know His love for you? We know that it's our closest friends, don't we, that can cause us oftentimes the deepest hurts. And this is bad friendship. 
Job had friends, didn't he? Jesus had one among the twelve, didn't he? Judas, the reprobate. Even my closest friends, Jesus speaking, I believe, in Psalm 41. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Who lifted up his heel against you, Jesus? My close friend. It hurt Jesus more that Judas betrayed him than if it would have been a random person in Palestine. Job's friends were not the right kinds of friends, were they? Better to be friendless than have friends who seek to decimate your view of God than to disciple you in the truth. What kind of friend are you? The book of James forces us to ask the question. It uses the word friend two and only two times and it could not use that word more differently. And it forces us to ask the question, what kind of friendship do you want? James 2, Abraham was called the friend of God. James 4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. What kind of friendship do you want? Well, our application will be these two considerations. Number one, I firmly believe that if we won't do this, we won't be helped. So I say again, with a broken heart and great expectations, because I've prayed for the Lord to use it, look again at the glorious gospel to learn about God-honoring friendship. If the gospel's not your template, your blueprint, then what is your friendship based on? Jesus is the friend of Proverbs who sticks closer than a brother. Who gave not only His throne like Jonathan did for David, He gave not only His throne for you, He gave His life for you. In order to raise you with Him to His throne into everlasting bonds of the King's love. Have you caught the New Testament's verbiage? that says every Christian is seated somewhere? Where? With Christ on the throne in the heavenlies. He makes you the king and He's not insecure about it. He invites you into His kingdom to sit as princes and rulers of the ends of the earth, Corinthians picks up on. You're going to judge the angels. You're going to judge the world. Why? Because you're in such tight bonds of love with the king. Jesus, Jesus, we're told in Matthew 11, was derided by people. And oh, how glad I am that they said this about Him. They couldn't stand Jesus. You know why? Let me quote them. He makes Himself a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's me! That's me! There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. None else could heal all our soul's diseases. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. The common bond for Christian friendship is our mutual love to Christ. Put bluntly, if I don't have Christ in common with you, I don't really have anything in common with you. The common bond for Christian friendship is our mutual love to Christ. But deeper than that, it's His astounding love for us. 
Now we're free to love each other without needing each other to fill a void that only Christ can fill. This is why the application point is look again to the glorious gospel to learn about God-honoring friendship. Without the gospel, our friendships are going to have a gaping hole in the middle of them and I'm going to seek to exploit you rather than love you. Christ has to be the portion. The point of Christian friendship is that whether we have anything else in common or not, to have Christ in common means we have all. All that we need for a friendship and the gospel love of God that will endure forever. Here's the gospel connection to friendship. Are you ready? John 15. Greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. Did you see Jonathan do it for David? Now do you see Jesus do it for you? Who does he lay his life down for? His friends. He goes on to say in this very passage, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Following greater love has no man than this, then he laid down his life for my friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Does that sound like Jonathan from Saul to David? All things I've heard, but it's a good father. You did not choose me, Jesus said, but I chose you and I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father may give it to you. Thus I have commanded you that you love one another. The Lord Jesus is the friend we all long for. And He's the only one who enables us to be the friend that God has created us to be for others. Filled by the Spirit, serving others in love. Jesus is the friend of Song of Solomon. His mouth is full of sweetness. He is wholly desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Real friends are like Andrew in the New Testament, one of the disciples, who's always found introducing people to Jesus. That's a friend. You cannot love people and use them at the same time. Should I say it ten times or will you hear it if I just say it once more? You cannot love people and use them at the same time. If you're looking for your friends or your church or your spouse or your kids or fill in the blank to give you what only Christ can provide you, that is the forgiveness of your sins and the loving family that you were made to forever enjoy. If you're looking for somebody else to provide that for you, then you will be forever succumbing to the temptation. You won't just be tempted. You will succumb to the temptation to masquerade, pretend, as someone who loves other people while in reality you're only using them to try to meet the deep need that Christ made you to have in Him alone. You can't use people and love them at the same time. Come to Jesus then and be saved. And if you come to Christ, you'll have everything you need to be equipped to be the kind of friend He calls you to be because you will be united to the friend of friends. You see, the story of every true Christian is basically this. John chapter 11. Then Jesus said, after that, uh, Jesus said after that, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may awaken him out of his sleep. That's the story of every true Christian. 
We're all dead in our trespasses and sin. Along comes to the tomb in which our cadaver is laid in our sins, all bound up with our iniquities and grotesque stench of rebellion in the nostrils of God. Along comes Jesus and says, just move away the stone. And he raises us out of our spiritual death. He gives us spiritual life. What did Lazarus do? Sat down and had a meal with Jesus, his friend, our friend Lazarus. Jesus has the authority and power to raise you from spiritual death right now. Jesus can give you everlasting life right now because he traded places with Lazarus. The reason he was able to bring Lazarus and you out of the tomb is because he knew he was going to go inside of it in your place. He knew he would be laid in a borrowed tomb. That's why he could call Lazarus out of that tomb. And do you know where the story of Jonathan David leads us? Years later, David on the throne, united monarchy, things are going relatively well in the kingdom. And David says, I wonder if there's anybody in my friend's family that I can show kindness to. Do you know the story of David and Mephibosheth? It's just a picture of the Christian at Christ's table. There's Mephibosheth who as an infant child was carried away by a nurse in haste and she fell and his limbs were in some form damaged beyond repair. He was lame from almost infancy. Crippled in some way or another. And then David, at the height of his kingdom, is saying, does Jonathan have any kids out there that I can welcome into my table? And what we find in places like 2 Samuel 9 is, Ziba said to the king, according to all that the Lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. You see what happened? David was so loved by Jonathan, you ready for it? That David had no other option than to love the people Jonathan loved. I'm asking you again, what kind of friend are you? What's the basis of your friendship? Finally, in application, reacquaint yourself with the 11th commandment. The 11th commandment. The 11th commandment. A new command I give you, said Jesus in John 13, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. He didn't ask you to do that. It's not a suggestion. And he certainly didn't base it on whether or not you feel like it. A new commandment I give you. This pulls down to lordship. Who calls the shots in your life? Love one another. How? As I have loved you. That's how you're to love each other. That's why I said the gospel's the basis for all real friendship. You're either going to use people or you're going to love people. Proverbs 17, a friend loves when? At all times. John 21, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to Peter, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. Jesus said to Peter a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? 
And Peter said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Not to dissect the differences in the original language of agape and phileo and the kinds of love. But Jesus says the same thing even after the third response. Tend my sheep. Do you see the common thread? If you love me, love them. That's the way you show it. You have everything you need to love them. Love Jesus always leads to looking after His lambs all the time, tending His sheep, loving the brethren. Here's our conclusion. It's all the words of God. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We love each other because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot, not does not, cannot love God whom he has not seen. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause of stumbling in him. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. And this commandment we have found, we have from Him. The one who loves God should love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. Do you see now why the New Testament believers just squeezed it down into a word? Greet the friends. The friends greet you by name. The true and greater Jonathan. The friend that sticks closer than a brother. The friend who laid down his life for his friends. The old hymn writers had so much to say about this. I just searched over the previous week's hymns or choruses with the theme of Christian friendship. Gobs of them. Because they thought deeply and they meditated deeply on the fact that we must befriend each other if we consider ourselves to be befriended by God. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. What about this one? We're going to sing it here in just a moment and after we sing, we're going to respond at the Lord's table and then our service will conclude. I wonder if you can sing it. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. 
Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You. It's so absurd, but if it weren't in Your Word, we wouldn't be able to believe it's true. So it's in Your Word. We believe it's true. And now we thank You that Christ, the Son of the King, is our friend. Would You protect this church from friendless friendships? And would You fill this church Fill this church, Lord. Come and fill this church. You can have all of us. Not just every person, but every part of every person. You can have all of us, Lord. Would You fill this church with the love of our heavenly friend? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.